That's what you now, don't I? This is the Black Rifle Coffee Podcast. Prepare to get caffeinated. Mark Healy. Sat down with him for two and a half hours. I don't fucking know. Dude, incredible. Big wave surfer, free diver, spear fisherman. This dude is epic. Like, epic conversation, amazing guy. Uh, I fucking love this episode. It's one of my favorite, like, literally one of my favorite podcasts I've ever done. So, listen, comment, like, share, unfollow. It's fucking awesome. Dude, so... uh where so where do you live? I know I know kind of I know the island and the state where you, where do you live live? Like where's home home? Okay, so um I'm on Oahu on the North Shore, so opposite side from Waikiki and all that junk. Right. Um so it's kind of like I'm born and raised here. Um, my dad grew up here cuz my grandfather was stationed here. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, uh North Shore of Oahu is pretty much the center of the surfing world so that just happened to happen for me is that, that kind of started is that like the center of the surfing world just in general like internationally do you guys do you guys kind of flag that as as the center of the surfing world internationally yeah definitely and it has been since probably the 60s right and that's like the history of surfing is one it's it's really fucking cool uh, two, you live there, obviously in Hawaii. But have you uh, have you dove down the the rabbit hole and the history of surfing and the context of how it started and origins, and then where else has it been? Because I, I mean, I'd love to get your perspective on Hawaii itself. Where did it start in Hawaii? Why was it just you know? Give me your give me your once over the world on the history of surfing because I would imagine you know a lot more about it than I do. Yeah. So. Um... The the early, early parts of surfing is kind of... Uh, there's a general consensus, but it can totally be debated. I mean, you're finding evidence of people riding waves on on uh, you know pieces of wood that were obviously specifically made, made for wave riding that goes like way back, you know, right. all around um, Polynesia, Melanesia, um, parts of South America, uh, the average, Aboriginal people in Australia. So it's been the Aborigines, really the Aborigines surfed, surfed in Australia as well. I didn't know that. Well, there's evidence of, yeah. of boards that they find in carbon date, and they're just like, oh, wow. You know, it, and that's including like little like belly boards and oh, stuff right, right. like that, okay. where you can't, yeah. it, it's clearly not, it's around a coastal area. There's other artifacts that suggest, the, you know, maritime activity, and it's not a cutting board, basically. Right. <laughs> and, and they, it has a general outline of uh, what you you see fairly common is like an entry level board. It's still places you, you can go to like places in uh, Papua and stuff like that, and kids are still doing that. Places in remote Indonesia, it, it's the same looking boards, right? But um, the general consensus consensus is that, that uh, and I really believe it to be true, is that the Polynesians took it to a high art. Mm-hmm. Um, so our the Hawaiians. Um, immigrated by celestial navigation and continued to immigrate to and colonize the Hawaiian Islands yeah. from um, what's now French Polynesia. So like Tahiti, Raiatea, Hulahine, 
Um, and so that came with them. But it really seems to be that when they came to Hawaii is when it, it really developed into a, a higher art form with a lot of different types of surf, surfboards specifically made for surfing. So um, it's, I think it's super interesting in that that development of surfing happened in Hawaii. It, it's a sign that they uh, were really masters of navigation and ocean because right. when, when does art, when does um, play come around is only when you're, you know your basic needs are met all the time. Right. You have uh, infrastructure and a knowledge and a and and science and and all of that, and you're uh, a great agricultural system to where you're not just digging up roots every day for your next meal. Right. So you get this leisure time that happens in this um, really uh, developed society, which was the Hawaiians, and it, it was a really interesting space in that. Um, there's a lot of rules in Hawaiian culture where men and women could not do the same things. Really? Like they, they ate separately. There's certain foods that women could not eat. Um, the same thing with commoners and the higher class of, of chiefs, ali'i, things like that. But um, in general, surfing was everybody's sport. So it was if there was a, a place where it really seemed in Hawaiian culture, which was very much a caste system, Right. where the level the field was uh leveled right. surfing so from its beginning it was kind of like a uh meant to be like a joyous exercise that everybody could participate in right and and was there a specific place in hawaii that they found that that was more prevalent than in other places or was it was it, was there like a, a dead center this is where it advanced and this is where it was continuing to advance or was it kind of all throughout the islands? It was all throughout the islands. But if I had to guess, I would, and this is a guess, I would say Kauai and Oahu just because we have so much more variety because the, our islands are older. So as the islands decay, it, it creates situations that are, um, more conducive to good surf. Mm-hmm. So where you have a younger island like Big Island, which has some great surf, but it's not as good as what we have because the the island has kind of uh, it's it's a lot of rocks that are a little steep. We don't you don't have that gradual slope that helps groom waves as they come in. Right. Um, so that would be my guess. It's pretty interesting. The first ever documented, first ever photo of surfing was actually on Kahoolawe, not Kahoolawe. It was on Niihau. Which Niihau is a small island off of uh, Kauai, right? So that that wouldn't be my first guess at all. It'd probably be one of my last guesses for the first documentation of surfing. So is there is there uh, a photo? Sorry, right? Was was there a registration from like uh, like sailors and you know more? We say like outsiders that are moving out to or not moving, but going out to Hawaii. Captain Cook or somebody going, oh, what is these guys are surfing? What what is this? Like, is there is there documented writings? I would imagine of guys looking at this going, what the fuck is happening yeah. here? Right? Completely. That I mean, um, Captain Cook's log when he first came to Hawaii has uh, um, an illustration and oh, breakdown of surfing. That's super. When they came in, there's just naked people surfing everywhere. Right. Which sounds like, I mean, honestly, that sounds like a really 
like if I would have been part of the crew, I would have been like, dude, I don't want to go back to wherever we're going because this looks way cooler than where where we just came from. Like wherever we came from, super super lame compared to naked people surfing everywhere because that sounds pretty awesome to me. But yeah, yeah. what bad food, worse weather. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like like potatoes and you know like bangers and mash or whatever and like what you or you could stay here and you know I, I would imagine there's got to be a few people that were like this is fucking way better because oh, that's your yeah. yeah definitely and I mean that's what happened with the mutiny on the bounty down in Tahiti yeah yeah I, I yeah that's that's I think that's where I was. Ref- I, like inadvertently referring to that was like, hey, we're we're gonna stay. <laughs> this is rad. We're gonna stay. Have you ever heard of the story of what ended up happening to all those guys that stayed down there? Yeah, I I have. I I read uh, I read something about it, but I can't remember the exact the exact reference. You'll have to remind me because it's. I think it's like somewhat it's somewhat tragic or ill fated, right? <laughs> yeah. So basically. Um, uh, they kept on coming back to hunt those guys down. They really wanted to prove a point and catch them. Yeah. So these guys who had the mutiny, they all got these beautiful Tahitian wives. Yeah. They were all um, living it up, but they're like, we got to get out of here, get to a spot to where uh, we can't be found. Right. And um, th- this is coming from friends that I have in French Polynesia who have family who's part of this. They're part right. of this family, right? And uh, so they end up, totally bullshitting their wives, talking them into getting into these small boats. They end up sailing to Pitcairn Island, which is in the middle of nowhere. You know, it's it's in between French Polynesia and South America. It's an island that doesn't have like any beautiful lagoon. It's right. just straight sheer rock and water, basically. <laughs> they show up to the island. The wives are like, huh, we kind of been going for a while. Immediately burn the boats. Like, we're here, ladies. <laughs> and, and one after another, categorically, like surgically, the wives killed every one of those dudes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So apparently, if you go to like Pitcairn, they're like, and this beautiful uh, location is called Jim Fell Off the Cliff. <laughs> like, it's literally named all these sites of, where all these guys had accidents for dragging their Tahitian wives. On some, uh, I don't blame them. Handbag. No, like, I don't either. Yeah, I don't blame them. It's like you're going to take me off a, a, you know, a paradise, an island paradise. You're going to put me on a rock in the middle of nowhere. I'd be like, dude, you're going to trip and fall off this cliff. Like, that's exactly <laughs> what I would have done. I, there's no doubt. My wife's probably want to make me trip and fall multiple times because of you know Utah. I would imagine. Actually, you know what? Pueblo, Pueblo, Colorado was the worst place. I think she she was like, yeah, she would have like tripped me and push me off a cliff if that would have been her her landing spot but i totally have one. yeah so you're you grew up there uh your you know your family obviously you're you're telling me your dad was stationed there or your grandfather 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 was stationed there and you guys have been there uh and i've only been there uh a few times like a handful of times in my life i went out to lanai um 2 years ago so we went out to Lanai to do the standard kind of hunt axis, uh, mm-hmm. you know, do some fishing, do a little bit of diving, blah, blah, blah. But dude, talking about an incredible place. Like I, I am so, um, I'm not one to be jealous, but 
that's an amazing place to live, especially if you can get into the outdoor life. And I mean, it seems like you probably have lived in the water and lived kind of in the outdoor life out there. How do you, um, how did you get into to just surfing in general? Was it something that you were like, your dad was into or you started when you were a kid? Like, tell me the origin story of just getting into like surfing. And then why would you even graduate to, I would say, big wave? Because that, that just seems terrifying to me in so many different ways. Uh, so I, I got to hear the, the origin story to this. And I think everybody else would be super interested in this. Yeah, easy. So um, I've been surfing since before. Like I can't remember my first time. Right. Um, it's just something my dad did. Um, and he's worked construction. Right. Uh, carpenter my whole life. So he's not like surfing was fun in a past time for him. Right. Um, so it's the way it is over here. Uh, all the kids meet down at the beach. That's like, that's your social hub as a kid. That's where you're making your f- lifelong friends. That's, that's what structured kind of sports and school and stuff in a lot of other settings. Just the beach is that for us. Right. For the most part, so you're in the water, and also parents, uh, at least the smart ones, get their kids in the water really early because you're always going to be around it. So you have to know how to be capable in the water. Right. It's kind of like having a giant pool with waves with no fence up around it. Right. You know, there's a reason why you're supposed to put a fence around your pool. You got to drown proof your kids. Yeah, of course. You're, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So. Um, surfing since before I could remember, me and my dad would just go get absolutely obliterated. Like he'd just throw um, a life jacket on me, put the leash on my leg and we'd go surf waves that were, you know, I'm like three, four years old and he'd take me out um, on waves that are probably, you know, six feet and we get pounded and it's like getting waterboarded as a little kid just getting <laughs> yeah. dragged and he would yeah. he'd come and catch up to me and, and get me. And I remember I'd just be like coughing up water and crying. And as soon as we get in the channel, I'd be like, let's do it again. Let's do it again. And we just repeat that process over and over. And it wasn't until I was a little older that I finally, a little older. So like six months later, that I finally noticed that, um, you know, we were on his normal surfboard. So it wasn't like a giant board where we could both stand up at the same time. And he was also wearing his swim fins. So I was like, he has no intention of ever completing a wave with me. <laughs> He's never going to stand up and ride a wave with me. Um, oh, no wonder it's gone the way it always has. But then uh, he would take me and we'd go mess around and um, some baby surf. And right. I could hone things a little better. But um, ever since I was small, I just like bigger waves. I I like the adventure aspect. I like the challenge. Um, it, 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 it's really interesting, you know, having everything stripped away. Uh, and, and I think that that was my draw as well. You know, you're poor, small, white kid, right. <laughs> you know, in, yeah. in this place. And, uh, you're, you're at the bottom of the totem pole in a lot of, uh, settings, you know, getting in fights all the time and doing, all that, but there's a beauty about being in nature and uh, uh, testing yourself for something that doesn't care about how much money you got, 
right who your parents are how you know any of that social bullshit right you get to you get to see people get tested and you get get to see what they really are you know yeah it was all that that's gone so when you were a kid were you surfing cuz i would imagine this is like my imagination right i'm just imagining like as as you start to develop you're starting to surf more on your own and with your friends uh and to your point like you're getting in fights or whatever it is but i'm 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 assuming you started to advance within a within a class or a subculture of people that were also into this so as you started to grow you're seeking friends and and finding friends that are also into more adventurous bigger waves right i mean mm-hmm. is that the way it kind of folded out yeah definitely and uh so i'd hang out with I, I I would start surfing more with older people or going out by myself or with my buddy who's who's like a brother grew up his name is Jamie Sterling and we we both kind of like surf bigger waves than the other guys and we just would battle each other you know he would he would basically live at our house for like you know four or five days at a time um even though he was uh, two doors up the street but uh we would kind of play off of each other a lot and uh typical you know guys friend relationships right you're like frenemies half the time and just like <laughs> trying to outdo each other <laughs> yeah it so when you started getting like serious about it was there was there a when I, I shouldn't say when but was there a training aspect to what you were trying to do were you were you thinking like man i want to surf like really big waves. I'm going to have to do X, Y, and Z in order to do that. And were there guys that were older than you and that was their thing that you could emulate and and go out and, you know, seek advice and mentorship from? Yeah, so I I mean, I was into I, I was into a lot of other sports and things like that and also super into spearfishing my whole life and during this time. So I was always just doing stuff and I find that, you know, you're Thank God I was because your younger years are the only moments you're going to have time to right. just do it where you don't necessarily have to train as much on the side. You're actually doing that activity because you have time. Right. Um, so I was just, you know, at least four hours a day in the water, um, in and amongst it all the time. And then I would, you know, have my extracurricular stuff like track, soccer, um, right. Kempo, wrestling, on and on water polo right swim swim team you know i do all that stuff as well um but yeah there were like the older guys that are kind of like legends and it was a different time they're like it felt a lot more untouchable back then it was very like i feel like a lot of things were that way it's it almost this like anchorman-esque like right big egos big personalities um which is kind of fun, you know, like almost caricatures of, of these different characters and big wave surfing. Um, but I got to be really close to them. You know, I, you're rubbing shoulders with them. You're seeing them at the, the grocery store. Right. Um, they're paddling out past you in the lineup. Uh, surfing's really interesting like that. It's like being an NBA fan, but you get to go right. run around on the floor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Like, and I can't, like I, I love the outdoors. I grew up in, 
you know, Idaho, spending a lot of time in the woods. But I can't imagine being able to have access to the ocean uh, because I, I, I love the ocean and I've, I've never actually, I've, I've only lived next to it in Seattle and a few of these other places. And I would dive out in Seattle, right? And like dive in the sound. And so as a kid, my imagination was like, I was way into Jacques Cousteau and like these documentaries with, you know, all the international diving that he was doing. So I can't imagine like as a kid, cause you and I are about the same age, like having access to that, to the fucking ocean, like, what an incredible learning environment for a kid to find out like how far he can push or how, you know, what, what, what the physical limitations are. Cause the water's unforgiving. Like it'll fucking, well, I mean, you'll die. <laughs> like, so yeah. if you're into free diving or if you're into spear fishing, like when did you start to get into that? Were you like in your teens when you were doing that or was it later or like or as early as you could get into it? Oh, my dad was dragging me around on his float when I was three, same time. So, so the funny thing is, is um, how I was saying earlier that I, he'd put my life jacket on me and we'd go yeah, surfing. Yeah. He'd take this same yellow life jacket. We must have got it from a yard sale or Salvation Army because that's where everything came from. Right. But it's this little yellow life jacket. And I remember that's kind of like... That was my dog leash that you pick up the dog leash and the dog is just excited. I knew yeah. I was going out in the water. So if it was, um, you know, surf, I'm putting that on the surf. If it's spear fishing, I put that on, and I still had those big round like Jacques yeah. masks yeah, yeah. and a tiny head, yeah. so it'd be like under my lip on the bottom, and just <laughs> filling up with water, and you just get a migraine because you have to pull it so tight to make up for it. And um, I'd hold on to his buoy, so he has a line with a buoy, and, right. and so I'm with all the the fishy speared on yeah, the buoy, man. which is. Fucking insane. Yeah. Because you know how many huge tiger sharks I've had take my fish off my buoy in the same places he used to take <laughs> I me? Need, I, just I will never do that with my child. <laughs> never do that with my child. Holy shit. I, that's actually the most scared I've ever seen. And we were diving this place um, over on the east side and there's like nobody around. And so my dad would drag me around. I'd eventually get a headache after a couple of hours and just be like, God, I don't want to go in and just play in the tide pools. But it's like, right. we're already, you know, 500 yards out to sea. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's not going to happen. So one day I was just like, I'm over it. And I, I swam in. <laughs> so my dad at some point like shot a fish and went to go put it on the buoy. I wasn't there anymore. Oh, fuck. And he must have looked around for a while because I'd never seen him that worried where it, for him, like emotion in his eyes is just like his eyes a little wider. Right. <laughs> and he definitely thought I got eat, picked off by a tiger shark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot of people listening to this will be like, bro, you, you're, uh, you, that's crazy. Like, but <laughs> my, my grandpa and my dad both, like they would do similar, if not, not the same, even remotely. But my grandpa would be like, Hey, get out here, walk through the woods, down through the draw. I'm going to pick you up on the other side. Like, I don't know how old I was. I have no idea. Like I was well under the age of 10 and I was flushing deer for him. Like, well under the age of 10, just walking through the woods by myself. Like I know grown adults at this point that can't do that. They would be like, no fucking way. But the ocean is completely different. So the psychological factors of that, 
Like what you do is so insane and uncomprehend. Like it's not comprehensible for most people because the water scares the shit out of people. Like, and I guess that's been part of your life for so long that the water obviously, I would imagine it doesn't scare you at all or does it? Are there aspects of it that, that do? Well, um, yeah, I mean, it is scary if you're, if you're in a bad situation. And the, the funny thing about getting older and doing this for so long, strangely, I've become the voice of reason a lot of times. <laughs> really? Yeah, because uh, what happens is, is when you're exposed for that long, the things that don't usually go bad, you experience them going bad. Mm-hmm. You know the potential outcomes that are unlikely but possible at that point. And it's, uh, I guess a good analogy would be because I work with sharks a lot. So I've worked on a lot of film stuff and uh, with cinematographers and people in front of the camera, getting them comfortable around sharks. How do you work with sharks? How do you do that? Like, what do you mean? What do you mean you work with sharks? Um, Just with different uh, film stuff, whether it's like, doing safety for the people that have to work out a cage with big sharks or um, tagging projects where I've, I've been part of a a few tagging projects, actually physically putting (laughs) the the tags on the sharks in the water. And um, anyways, like trying to get people comfortable. It's always this process of like, and it's the same thing with free diving, like teaching people breath holding. Yeah. Right. So maybe the breath holding analogy is a little better in that. Um, I tell people, oh, how long can you hold your breath? They're like, 45 seconds to a minute tops. I'm like, 100% you can hold your breath for two and a half minutes right now. No, no, I could never do that. I could never do that. So you get them, you run them through the breathing exercises, the warm up, let them uh, teach them some of the physiological factors that are at play, have them feel it, have them see that it is possible. And then you do that. Do it. How do you do that? Like, what is explain that process? Because, like, I've been working with my daughter for the last like several years, mm-hmm. and like, you know, we're we're in Utah, so we're pretty landlocked. But this is super fresh on my mind, so I'm really interested in this. Like, I got her down. She's she's seven. She's going down to like a, the bottom of a 13 foot pool now to pick up multiple. Jeez, that's really good. <laughs> no, she's crushing it. She kills it. Like, she's like crushing it. So, like, I've you know, I'm trying to get her to. Uh, equalize right because she's mm-hmm. she's got to equalize it you know we'll call it seven eight feet depending right and then she's got another so she's always got ear ear issues or not issues but she's like oh my ears are still have pressure I'm like you got to pull you know yep your nose push you know breathe out through your nose to equalize so but we started early so I started her in like when she was three. Because she wanted to get to the bottom of our pool in the backyard of Texas. And I was like, I'll get you to the bottom of the pool, girl. Like, we, like we, here's a five-pound weight. You want to go down there? It's going to send you like a... <laughs> it's like a lead balloon. It's going to send you. She's like, great. Give me that weight. I'm going to the bottom pool. I want those fish. And I'm like, okay, great. Here's your pool. You know, so when I'm in there, right, like running safety with her, but I'm so interested in trying to figure out... Because she's so into the water. Mm-hmm. How do I get her to start to increase her breath holds because like we'll do like holding our breath competitions and things like that. How are you training people to get comfortable like that? So um, the, 
I guess the foundation of it all is that innately we have the software mm-hmm. to breath hold and be underwater. So it roughly like the 50s or 60s, physiologists discovered that we share something called the mammalian dive reflex with cetaceans, which is like whales, dolphins, mm-hmm. other marine mammals like uh, seals, elf- right. deep diving elephant seals, stuff like that. And basically what the mammalian dive reflex is, is uh, I hope I'm saying this part correctly, but it has to do with the nerve endings around your face. Mm-hmm. And when you're submerged in water, your body starts shunting off blood from your extremities and mm-hmm. bringing it to your vital organs, like your brain, your heart, um, and automatically uh, doing this oxygen and energy saving um, automatic reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, it all also uh, your heart rate will drop. Mm-hmm. Especially if it's in cool water. So, like one of the uh, warm ups a lot of free divers will do, like competitive free divers, is they'll do a facial immersion. So, they'll just have a snorkel, no mask, so they can breathe. And they'll have their face in, in the water for five minutes. And that's already going to trigger a drop in your heart, be- heart rate. Really? Yeah. So, um, that has a lot to do with these nerve endings around your mouth, your upper lip, and around your eyes. And that's for that same reason, uh, doctors aren't spanking babies when they're born anymore. They blow across their face. Right. So we still have that from being in our mother's womb surrounded in water. That's the trigger to breathe when you're born is those nerve endings right there. So they blow across and we still have that. So when, when you rescue somebody who's blacked out, right. One of the things you do is you pull the mask off their face. Yeah. So those nerve endings are exposed and you blow across it. So you're like a baby again. Mm-hmm. And even if you're completely unconscious, your body picks that up and will trigger breathing. So you're going in and, and you're doing certain exercises, certain breathing routines, tapping into that mammalian dive reflex before you get in the water mm-hmm. or before you do a breath hold. And it makes a world of difference. What type of breathing exercises are you doing? Like that you, what kind of breathing exercises can you do? Are you doing strictly breath holds? Are you doing like box breathing or or circular breathing? Are you utilizing your nose more than your mouth? Like how, how, what are you doing on those exercises? So on the, this is the fun thing um, because I was a professional big wave surfer. one of the keys to having confidence and not croaking yeah. is obviously a breath hold. But I was always into freediving spearfishing. Right. There was nobody who did that. So there's no book. There's none of that. Even information was still very difficult to get with freediving um, back then. So I started putting together the two worlds. And it's really interesting because the freediving stuff, there's great science. There's... Um, great techniques that definitely yeah. work, but they're pretty much all in a controlled environment. Mm-hmm. Whereas the big wave stuff is the exact opposite. You're doing everything wrong as far as the free diving performance perspective goes. Right. Um, high, high cardio output, max adrenaline, yeah. max heart rate, 
going into a super violent, uncomfortable, claustrophobic, loud situation. Right. Um, so it was through trial and error that I was trying to figure out what to pick from this one and what to pick from this one and how to create a hybridized situation. So we're still hybridizing that. It's yeah. still something in progress, which, which is amazing. And it's been really cool to see the things that I settled on, you know, in my early, late teens or early twenties now, like science is backing that up. I'm like, okay, I was just thinking about what worked for me. me and too. now that's being backed up. Yeah. So sorry, that's a long way to preface like these, these warm ups and these exercises. There's multiple different ways to do it. So I'll just give you like kind of like a basic controlled yeah. environment one in that. Um, so say if you do like a, Five second inhale. Yep. Hold for five seconds at the top. Ten second exhale. So a real slow controlled exhale. Right. Hold five seconds at the bottom. Five second inhale. If you do that for five minutes, that's that's meant to drop your heart rate. Right. That will drop your heart rate. Um, so that's like if you want to get into your Zen mode, yeah. get ready for breath holds. That's a way to do it. But you know, there's also, you do not want to hyperventilate. Hyperventilation is bad. Don't do like Wim Hof breathing before a breath hold in the water. That's a great way to black out. <laughs> um, <laughs> because you're scrubbing so much CO2 in a lot of ways, you know, CO2 gets a bad rap. You know, oxygen is toxic if we have too much of it too. Um, but CO2 is more real and present because uh, the toxicity goes up really fast. But CO2 is also our friend because it helps regulate our blood alkalinity. Right. And um, it also gives us that warning before blackout. Right. That's what's giving you this warning. Um, so when you're scrubbing a ton of CO2, that fast breathing, that Wim Hof breathing, you're not absorb. Your your blood can only absorb so much oxygen. You're right. not absor- Your blood's not carrying more oxygen because of that. What you're doing is you're dumping more CO2. Oh yeah. So you don't get the warning before a loss of consciousness. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And there's, it's a fascinating world, man, because there's all these other physiological changes that happen when you have that pressure of water around you and your right. circulatory system. Yeah. And essentially what you find out is, okay, you got your circulatory system that you're um, trying to manipulate yep. and access. Yeah. Um, but what's really happening is it's a blood chemistry, like a blood alkalinity change. Yeah, and you're getting your body used to this change in alkalinity in your blood, right? And, and being able to switch gears really fast. Um, so it, it, it's this body hack that's tapping into something that's from deep, deep in our past. Yeah. So where do you go? Like, like, how do you access information other than like I'm? You know, you're doing it. Uh, are there people out there that are pushing the envelope? I would imagine free divers have a ton of information. Uh, meditation, I would imagine, because what you just explained to me was almost like uh, uh, transcendental meditation and box breathing, where you're like four seconds in, four seconds out, or four seconds in, four seconds hold, four seconds out. Four, it's like just mm-hmm. breathing, right? But you're right. So you're slowing down your heart rate. You're probably, I would imagine you're pulling information from a ton of different people that are doing multiple different things. So you got multiple modes of professions and recreation where you're trying to coalesce information. Is there like anyone out there that's trying to coalesce information around like 
this type of stuff beyond you, beyond yeah, you individually? What it, what it said, Nestor did that Breathe book, oh, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I read that. That was good. Um, yeah. So uh, th- there's, a, there's a lot of people, but like you're kind of guessing, yeah. it's a little sparsed out. Mm-hmm. And then when you you take the uh, that uh, under the factor of being under physical activity, anaerobic activity, or like high sh- stress situations where you're gonna have adrenaline, whether you like it or not, yeah, that's a whole different world. Yeah, because then now you're trying to sh- you've completely stripped away what appears to be your best toolkit to yeah. tap into this place. And you have to, instead of five minutes of doing that that extended box breathing, essentially, yeah. like asymmetrical bo- box breathing, if that even yeah. is an oxymoron, but um, and, and figuring out how to tap into it like quickly, like within 10 seconds. Right. That's when the psychology aspect is even more important. So psychological mechanisms that work for you personally, the same way as... as Meditation is hard, right? Like you have to find what works for you. So it, it's all these things coming together, and uh, when they have to all come in together in like a big wave survival situation, right. especially when you get a curveball, like some your board hits you in the ribs and you get broken ribs, right? You know, like halfway through, and you gotta pull your shit back together. It's that, that's probably happened to you. Uh, yeah, it's happened to me. The or broken eardrum. The broken eardrum one sucks. Yeah, you gotta tell me those stories. Like what what happened and what was going on like when those when those things happened. Like broken ribs. Would would where were you at? How big was the wave? Like <laughs> tell me. I get I gotta pack that for me because I'm fucking really interested. Yeah. So it's like taking those rib hits. Like I've taken good hits with my board. I don't even remember where I was or what I was doing. I just remember doing it a bunch. Um, my buddy broke like four of his ribs. He ended up drowning, but he oh. kicked back to life. Um, which is interesting. Um, but, uh, the broken eardrum one, I've done that three times in big surf just from hitting the water. Boom pops. It's like getting slapped in the right. ear, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you just. Sounds like a jet's going off in your ear. All the cold water is going through your ear into your throat, and you're just spinning. It's like it's like you're teenager drunk, right? Ready to puke on the couch, kind of thing. (laughs) That's how you feel, and you're already been holding your breath, and you might be tired. End of the day, your body starts locking up in cramps. You know you cannot find the surface, and hopefully, you're just like, "What flotation do I have?" Is you know my leash. I, I need to try to follow my leash, even though I wouldn't be able to crawl straight on the ground if I was on land right now. Like yeah. I need to follow this up. It's black, it's violent, it's loud. Um, so uh, it's just like making yourself calm in those situations. Like another one, I, I hit the bottom so damn hard. I, I split my kneecap in half. I broke my heel on the other side. I, I landed on my legs so hard that I was coughing up blood from the impact on my lungs just going like this. Crap. And you still have to make it to the surface. Yeah, how big are these waves? Um, <clears throat> I mean, it depends. Like on the what bigger end... classified as a big wave? Like, okay. How, so, <laughs> how do you even classify big wave? 
That's a really good question because even in the surfing world, that's a little debated because we have a funny thing in Hawaii. We, we call waves from the back of the waves. So what we would call eight foot waves are actually like, you know, probably 15 foot plus faces. Oh, okay. Right. And, um, so I'm just going to, for simplifying, I'm just going to go by the face size. What I would consider big waves would be probably 30 foot faces and up. That would be my, that's where I think it changes. How many people in the world do you think enjoy that type of surfing? A lot more than used to be the case. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of great young guys. I would say, I don't know. That's the thing. It's like, what's the difference between being out there and actually wanting a piece? Right. There's always a lot of people that are out there, but whether or not they're going to do something when the opportunity arises is uh, a totally different question. Right. Uh, That's the beauty of it. You get to see what people really want. Um, I don't know. I would say like at a, at a, at a high level, um, maybe 40 or 50. Yeah. I was, that's what was my guess. Like it's gotta be sub 100 Mm -hmm. and where, where do you go to find consistent 30 foot waves? Like where, where are you going where there's consistent 30 feet? Consistent. You, you don't get consistent 30 foot waves anywhere. That's the problem. So Hawaii during our winter time, and that's when the North Pacific's lighting up. My home, the North shore is going off. Um, it's fairly consistent, but even even, I would say swell events where it's 30 foot or bigger with good conditions, because that's the other factor. You need good conditions. You can't have a 20 knot onshore wind because then it's totally blown to pieces. And the other thing is it's only light for half the day. So you got a 50, 50 chance that this swell is going to peak during the night. Right. So these swell events are actually really rare, which makes them which makes them very meaningful if you're a big wave surfer. So I'd say in a in a winter from October through the end of February on the North Shore, there's probably four to six <laughs> of those. Right. And sometimes you just get crappy winters and there's only two. Yeah. So you're traveling. We've always been traveling. Right. Um so Usually when some or sometimes when the the path of the North Pacific swells aren't hitting Hawaii as well, it'll be hitting um the West Coast better. So okay, the swell is going over to Mavericks, which is off of San yeah. Francisco. You get your ass on a plane and get over there. Right. Um uh during our northern hemisphere season, that's when the North Atlantic is going too. So you have Europe. And then when things switch down the southern hemisphere, you know, it's like Australia, Fiji, Tahiti, Indonesia, all of South America, Mexico, South Africa. So you chase it around the world. Yeah. It sounds horrible. <laughs> <laughs> it it's, sounds horrible. It's, it's good and bad because uh, you because you you have to become a meteorologist essentially, yeah. and you have to know what works for each one of these places. Because if I'm in sitting in Hawaii, I'm like okay. Swell forecast is a week out. It's looking promising. Um, there's been swells that have already pushed through this window, maybe not as big, but it's created a path for those next swells to follow. 
wind forecast is looking decent a week out, but I can't trust it. It's so far out for South Africa. Yeah, It's going to take me two days to get there at least. I'm going to show up feeling totally fried and exact opposite time zone. Yeah. Been sitting on my ass planes, trains, and automobiles for 48 hours. Um, and then go into cold water with a five mil wetsuit um, and be expected to perform. So you really want to leave three days out. But right. three days out is just when it starts getting reliable on the forecast. Got Things it. can still change. So you end up, you're on, you make it to Germany and you're going to your next flight and you look and the wind forecast completely changed. Right. And you're going for nothing. And you go there, stay for a few days, don't score, spend all that money, turn around, fly back home. Eat some shitty food. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. Airline food. Eat some shitty food. Oh my God. (laughs) Eat some shitty food. Fly in horrible, cramped ass seats and like try to get back. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. yeah, completely. So it it's always touch and go. And in those early years, you know, it's you're like, okay, that was my paycheck for a right. month. Done. In there. Flushed it. Yeah. <laughs> so where so out of all the places you served, you gotta have like outside of Hawaii, because I, I, I can't let you use that one, but outside of Hawaii, are there places where you're like, that place is epic? Like I uh, that I love that place. It's like it, you know, it owns your heart. Mm-hmm. Is it outside of Hawaii that you feel like that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I love uh, Tahiti and French Polynesia and Fiji. Um, I think I just love being in those places regardless. It's like home 2.0. You know, it's, right. it's, the, it's the older version back in time, back in, you know, an age where I wasn't around yet. Right. Uh, I, I love the culture. I'm, I'm pretty darn familiar with the Polynesian and Pacific cultures. Um, and I really love it. Uh, and the waves are, they're very powerful. You're close to the source, the source of those Southern hemisphere swells. Mm-hmm. So when those things are peeling off, um, Antarctica, uh, it's a, it's a similar track that the R swells, uh, take to hit Hawaii, but just, mirrored in reverse so you still get a lot of that power is still intact yet it's uh, a distance that's sufficient enough to organize the swells properly um and there's good lefts i'm goofy foot which means i'm i'm right foot forward yeah, and right. if you're gonna surf a big wave it's nicer <laughs> to be on your toe edge yeah yeah it's an unfortunate burden being goofy foot right it's like man uh, yeah i mean across I- the bear it is. Yeah, it, it is. Like skateboarding. I was like the only kid, you know, like the only kid. Like it's like nobody else I knew was goofy. So you're like, it's kind of like being the fucking dork. Like, it's like, why are you the dork, man? You know? And so now when I'm cruising around on my one wheel, people are always like, that's weird. Why are you doing it that way? I'm like, yeah, you know, whatever. You know, what's really funny. I swear. I want to see like a, a psychological breakdown on people and their stances. Seriously. Because goofy footers are very stubborn people i found generally and they're they're very entrepreneurial that's so interesting because i i was thinking about that uh last year because i got one of these one wheels i was hanging out with these dudes called corridor digital and they were riding these things around it and i was like oh I'll, i'll try that out you know like i used to skateboard or whatever and it's fun as hell like it's and it's 
super easy just to like jump on it and cruise around. And I mean, I've hurt myself multiple times, which is good. <laughs> um, but I was thinking about that. I was like, man, out of all the guys I know that are like goofy, I typically get along with those guys too, for whatever reason, like personality. Yeah. <laughs> like I was thinking about that. I was like, I would love to see a psychological profile of that because it's fucking weird. And when you find another guy who's like, oh yeah, I'm a goofy guy. Like, oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. I, I got you. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Totally. Like, it, I mean, which makes sense. It's like a brain hemisphere thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, goofy footers seem to be entrepreneurial, uh, stubborn, and, but really push progress. Like, they might, they're more willing to abandon, abandon the fine details to make sure that there's progress. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a macro. It's like perfection yeah. is me a progress. I say that shit all the time. Like, perfection is the enemy of progress. Get it the fuck. Get it. Get across the line. Let's go. Come on. Let's go. It's macros here. Let's just pull it all in. Push it across the line. Like that's so interesting. Because put I, it this way, my misses is regular foot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so is mine. Yeah. Whereas, like, I don't know, man. Like, hey, the stove is a stove. Like, choose a stove. It's got fire. Fucking turn the knob on it. it cook stuff, you know? It was like, I don't know. Do you like the red handles or the black ones? I, I don't know. I've got a four-month holdback on this building project I have over two doors. <laughs> two doors. <laughs> I feel your pain. That's, that's all I'm going to say. Dude, I feel your pain. I've been in this for... Uh, we, my wife and I have been... We, we bought this old house, like a, like a 1910 house in, here in Utah, and we've been renovating it for... Two two years, like I don't know. It how. Sounded like a good idea. I don't care anymore because this is like number three that she's done, and we uh-huh. make money on every one of these when we sell them. Okay, I'm I'm totally fine with it. I'm like whatever. But we didn't have vents in the house, like vent covers for months because she's like, I don't know about like I like the square or the slats or the white or, and I'm like, dude, just put covers, man. It looks like we're living in a you know, a, a homeless shelter here with no vent covers, like whatever, right? It's like, dude, just put vent covers on it. Uh, anyway, I digress. The The things I want to talk about is like, like, okay, so you're surfing in, you know, Fiji and Polynesia. Are you spearfishing in the same places too? So when you travel, are you taking your surfboards and your spear gun most of the time? Or are you you got places that you like to fish, you got places you like to surf and you like to kind of keep them very separate. Oh, I'm, I'm taking my spear fishing gear. Yeah. A lot of them. Yeah. Um, so th- that's what I've always done. Right. Because I, I love spear fishing, love fishing, all of that. And, uh, in my youth, when I decided that I was going to stick to professional surfing and not try to get like an athletic or academic scholarship into college, um, I was like, if this is going to be my, my college, it's going to be my education being on the road. So anytime I went anywhere, like I'd on a trip, okay, it's paid for by my sponsors to get to this place. I'm here. I do this trip for the magazine. I bring my spear gun. Everybody else leaves and I stay another week, two, three, right. and just kind of go stay in a village or you end up meeting people. It's like, oh, my cousins live on this outer island. Like, Oh, can I go visit them and stay right. with them? So I, I would regularly go and spend time with like a family that 
doesn't speak English and I don't speak their language and I'm living off of sign language and communicating in the water. A lot of times, which is really funny, like the best communication I would have with, with my hosts is when we have mask on spearfishing because I'm so used to knowing like, you know, <laughs> that's where we communicate the best. There's no language barrier. Yeah, that sounds so cool. It sounds so adventurous. Like, it, like living in some of these places and looking underneath the water is it so fucking awesome to explore. I mean, it's like the imagination, even as you know, guys, it's like forty years old. I can't imagine the the interactions and experiences you had, and the the you know, depending on where you're at, who you're having them with, and the water is so so incredible. Mm-hmm. Like how like tell me some of like your I got to know some of like your incredible underwater experiences that you've had like and it doesn't have to be with like sharks or whatever but like your yeah. moments that you you really love because I'm I want to be there like I want to see what's going on like underwater and get inside your head and go dude what is that like like being in some of those places and some of these most you you had to have had some incredible adventures Oh yeah. So, um, a buddy of mine, Amayan Goodwin, he, he lives over on Kauai, but, uh, he spent a, a good part of his youth, like years, uh, growing up in a super remote uh, village in Fiji. Right. And so we became friends when we were like 15, uh, met each other doing the national amateur surfing contest in, uh, California. We were both staying at the same guy's house. Right. And, uh, he tell me these tall tales about where he grew up in Fiji and all this stuff. And, um, they seemed sounded really unbelievable. And a mind would kind of bullshit about some other stuff. Sometimes. <laughs> so I was like, hey. so I was like, I'm down to go with you. Right. So we ended up going and spending a month <clears throat> in the village and it's hard to get to. It's like when you go to Fiji and you know, you're talking to people in Nandi where you're, where you're going and getting on the plane, they're like, Oh, where are you going? And you tell them, they're like, Oh God, that's really, that's a way out there. Right. It's like way out there to people in Fiji. <clears throat> and so we did it. And God, man, it just blew my li- mind. It's just a life changer. Really? And to like live that way in the village and, you know, <clears throat> just literally live off fish, coconuts, you know, drinking tea and you have your crackers and uh, learning so much. God, I learned a lot from them in just like environmental behavior, the ocean, how the fish work, how to make food and survive and and live normally for what to us it'd be like this big like, oh my God, exciting, super roughing it camping. And they're like, no, it's everyday life over there. And it's, you can still be fairly comfortable, but it's also like, readjusting your scale for what comfortable is too, you know, like fresh water is a luxury. You don't just get to go to a tap and turn it on. Yeah. Like you're, you're very cognizant of your fresh water use at any time. Right. Um, your limitations and, and how to work around those limitations with skill, you know, your, your limitations as far as like what, what tools you have at your disposal. But, um, I, for for spearfishing, to me, like dog tooth tuna is the pinnacle of spearfishing. And in Fiji, they have dog tooth tuna. We don't have them in Hawaii. I don't even so know what it is, dude. 
Like I you, look them up. They're the most badass fish. Really? Okay. They're badass. So like a dog tooth tuna, a <clears throat> hundred pound dog tooth tuna speared will fight as hard as a two hundred pound yellowfin tuna. They're mean. Their flesh is a bit softer, so that the spear can rip out right. um, easier. So you got all that strength and that softer flesh can rip out. They're always around sharks. Right. So then you got a shark factor because they start acting the same as sharks, um, which will bring me to my next my story about this event. Um, and uh, they also like to go take your gear and wrap it on the bottom. So they got that strength. They'll take all your crap, two giant, giant floats, like yeah. half the size of me each, bury that thing 100 feet, wrap your gear up at like 400 feet, and you never see any of your stuff again. <laughs> so I got my little, I got my <clears throat> spear gun and my float. Like, thank God I never actually shot a, a decent dog tooth on that trip because I would have lost everything immediately. Like, I had no idea how to rig for this. This is a long time ago. And uh, diving this like sheer wall drop off that goes from like, 35 feet into like hundreds of feet. Like it's, it's one of those just wall dives and I'm down on the wall and I see this thing coming straight up the wall at me and I just see it's big old head and it's getting closer. I'm like, what is that? Getting closer and closer. And it just looks like a dinosaur coming at me. And it's this huge dog, dog tooth, like a monster, still one of the biggest ones I've ever seen in my life. And this thing comes up and just, turns broadside and looks at me and it's giant <laughs> eyeball. It's eyeball is the size of like a baseball is like moving and looking me up and down like, uh, like a Jurassic park scene of right. a dinosaur. And, um, immediately I'm like, check my tagline. So my tagline goes up to my buoy. It's attached to my gun. I'm like, make sure this thing's not tangled around me at all. And it was kind of caught on my belt, which in hindsight, I could have always bailed my belt. Right. If I would have shot it, it would have been tangled on that. But you know, it was happening really fast. And so I looked down, I messed with it. And by that time, he's kind of like faded off a little bit and he's out of range. I'm like, oh my God. So I go up. I'm like, oh, it's gone. That was crazy. I told my friend. And then I go back down, I shoot a fish, like a, like a six pound fish. Mm-hmm. And uh, just for, for food for the boat. All the sharks, as usual, come around. So there's like 10 sharks like chasing my fish around on the spear trying to get it. This dog tooth tuna comes barreling back, starts attacking the sharks. (laughs) These are like five and six foot sharks. Seriously? Going after the sharks, chasing them off of my fish. It grabs this like six pound fish with my spear, starts head shaking it. Rips the fish in half, swallows it. The other, at this point, he's been thrashing and swimming around with the fish in my spear that he's up onto the reef. It's like 15 foot deep, beautiful coral reef. There's a world record class dog tooth tuna with my spear in his mouth and my fish. And the second, the half of the fish is just drifting down between me and him. And he turned around once he swallowed the first half and just came up me at me slowly looked at me like the same way he was looking at the sharks, like, don't you dare touch my meal and just eats it slowly in front of me and just kind of <laughs> eyeballs me like, I don't want to see you back in my hood again. <laughs> That's like the look, the direct vibe I was getting from this thing. I was like, 
my mind was completely blown. How big? How big do you estimate that thing was? Like how much? <sighs> did you weigh? Probably mid two hundreds. Oh my god! It's like around two fifty. So are they solo most of the time, or do they travel in like schools? They travel in schools. So as they get bigger, they tend to um, be deep a lot more. Right. The it's big with the the jigging guys, the deep jigging guys who use those big irons around the world. Um, they hook them, but the the land rate landing rate sucks for them just because they'll go and break your stuff, and you just can't stop them on their initial runs. Um, but to me, yeah, that's like that's that's the one. Where what's the um which, I mean, it sounds like a trite question, but I have to ask because like, I, I got to know, like, what's the biggest pound for pound fish that you've, you've speared? I've lost a couple giants, unfortunately, <laughs> giant tuna. But I think the biggest fish that I landed, I shot a, a yellowfin tuna in Panama that was, I think it was 224. Wow. Where was that at in Panama? Uh, it was a place called uh, Hannibal Bank. Yeah, we were planning yeah. on we were planning on going out there uh, last year, but COVID hit, and because uh, we had we were going down there on a coffee trip, like a uh-huh. coffee trip, and I was like, dude, let's go do some spearfishing because like we don't know shit about it, so it'll be great for us to you know completely fuck ourselves up. Um, <laughs> But we couldn't make it happen because of logistics and COVID and you can have so many people in a plane and blah, 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 blah. It's like, it was just a nightmare logistically, but we're planning on going back. Um, well, let me know. Um, I got a pretty awesome place. You'd probably want to stay if you do go. Really? Be in touch about it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, uh, I mean, the guys were super stoked about going down there. And last time we, we went to Guatemala, we went and did like, some offshore offshore fishing and you know went and explored volcanoes and stuff like I try not to just do coffee coffee like the entire time not that I don't love it I just think that it's good to get out and see other pieces of the environment in these countries so we're going we're going to Hawaii too and we'll have to like link up when we're out there but nice my my other questions like you touched on it earlier uh, like working with sharks and tagging sharks so I see these guys or people on Instagram and they're free diving with great whites, and which I think is fucking insane, by the way. Like, I think that might have like some, like they got some like screw loose, but there's like some former supermodel or some shit that's like free diving with great whites. And I'm like, what is going on? Is this a thing now where people go out and free dive with like tiger sharks and great whites? And if so, are you part of that? <laughs> like, do you do that? So this is my... <clears throat> um, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot more common. Before, when I was younger, and the first time that I had an experience spending time, uh, a lot of time around white sharks, right? free diving, uh, it was, you know, there's a couple of people in the world who had ever done it. Now, um, were you in like South Africa or California or where were you at? I was in Guadalupe. So I got, I I went and worked on a film out there. Yeah. Um, a Nat Geo, uh, Europe film. And so, (laughs) and I didn't even get paid. I just was like, I can make it to Guadalupe. That'd be awesome. Let's do this. Um, 
so that was a long time ago. But yeah, it, it's gotten more and more popular through via Instagram and everything. But um, yeah, there's some people know what they're doing, and some people definitely don't. And right. um, uh, there's a difference. I mean, they are wild animals. Yeah, a lot of a lot of times that these photos are taken <coughs> taken, they're at uh, feeding sites and tour sites. Uh-huh. Um, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes they're wild, but they're always wild animals. But there is something to be said about conditioning, and when animals are coming to get fed, they have an expectation, and they see people, right. even though things can and do go bad at those places. Yeah, um, they act differently, right? To get like, and and that's I know that difference from spearfishing mm-hmm. because I'm running into a lot of just by chance sharks. Right. And you you don't know their story, you know, like they could have just easily they could have traveled across the Pacific and have not eaten much and are in a desperate state. Right. Or the other thing is they have personalities. They're they are like other animals. They some are just punchy, some are more aggressive, some are gentle. Right. They have full-on personalities. So it's like, there's a lot of nuance to it. And I've spent a lot of time diving these sites that are known sites, whether it's like the one in the Bahamas where you, once you know the different sites, you see all these pictures and you're like, oh, that's that place. That's right. that place. There's like four main ones where most where are of they? the pictures are from. What are those sites? So there's the shark tours off the North Shore in Haleiwa, which yeah. are sites, but that's uh, non-feeding sites. Right. There's Banga Lagoon in Fiji. That's the big bull sharks and tigers. That's full feeding site, like chaos. Lots of other um, different types of tropical reef fish around. Right. Um, there's going to be the Guadalupe cage stuff. There's going to be Tiger Beach off of Nassau. That's going to be your like white bright sand on the bottom, right. clear water. Right. Tigers, hammerheads. Um, there's Neptune Island, South Africa. That's Cage. There's Cape Town. Although their whites have kind of split. I think the orcas chased them out of there for a while. Yeah, they're having a hard time having whites show up. But I don't know if that's changed in this last season or not. Um, But those are kind of like the the legacy operations that you'll see pictures of a lot. Yeah, it... it, it, uh, And I don't know if this is a great analogy or not, but I, I, I looked at it and I was like, you know, from a guy that spends a lot of time, you know, or at least some time in the in the in the mountains, like there's no there's not a fucking chance in hell I'm gonna go up and try to pet a grizzly bear. Like there's not a fucking chance in hell. Like <laughs> me not, neither. <laughs> like not a chance in hell. Like I like I, I think they're beautiful, they're amazing creatures, they don't intimidate me. I'm definitely cautious around them for sure, but I'm not gonna be like, oh my god, I'm gonna pet this fucking grizzly bear because it's a grizzly bear. At the end of the day, I, and I think about it in the context, I'm watching some of these uh, Instagram models do this where they're like grabbing, you know, a fin or touching the shark. I'm like, I don't know, man. Like, you got to give me your two cents on this because I have my perspective on it. I'm like, I love these animals. I think they're beautiful. But I ain't going to try to pet a grizzly bear. <laughs> like, I'm like, yeah. that's the way I look at it. I'm like, I'm not going to try to pet you. Like, I, like you said, I 
I don't know enough about this animal. It might be the sweetest animal on the planet. It's still a wild animal. The other thing is, is this is their home. Like I'm, I don't walk into anybody's home and be like, yo man, can I touch your face? Like what? What are you talking about? Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's rude. Uh, yeah, I don't want to um, feel your thigh. Like, oh my God, dude. I know I just met you. I just walked into your house randomly, but I, I really want to touch your thigh. What do you think? Be careful. They might say yes. Yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> um, so, so I think, although there's, there definitely is the chance for like uh, unforeseen behavior happening, happening rapidly with sharks and you have to factor that into your assessment. It's not the same as terrestrial um, predators, I don't think. Okay. Right. You know, like, I really feel like it has to be um, like a situational change. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, whether it's bringing in food or a person who's uncomfortable in the water acting weird, right? um, moving weird, they'll, they'll tune into that. Like, it's like teeing in on that. You don't want to tee in on that predator instinct. Yeah. It's, whereas I think the the mammals are a lot more sensitive to that. It's like all those like animal trainer, like Russian news shows where it's like, you can see the moment that <laughs> young lion starts kind of like wanting, like, I dare you to make eye contact. Yeah. I dare you. And then the <laughs> the host just makes the mistake of making eye contact. And it's like, Paw on the arm, right? Paw on the neck, yeah. getting harder, getting harder. <laughs> like, are you going to act like prey now? <laughs> you know, um, sharks don't do that as much. I feel like it's slightly less nuanced. Okay, but I say that, but I'm also sometimes I can't see the trees from the woods in right. understanding the overall situation because there's so many factors. It's like. What's their motivation for being here? Is it curiosity? Is it food? Is it, um, you know, what kind of hormonal level are they at? Is it breeding season? Is this like a horny, desperate male that's just all fired up with more testosterone than usual, which makes everything more violent? Um, How many people do I have in the water? How big, how big is my profile? Do I have like long fins on? Um, I, there's how many sharks are there? What's the the dominant structure that I'm watching play out there? Because that's going to totally affect how I'm a part of this whole thing, right? Um, so it's recognizing a lot of those things, and a lot of people that are probably doing it. There's some very knowledgeable people, but there's people that are definitely doing that, having no idea of those factors, and um, you know, it's. It's a numbers game and people get bit and people yeah. keep it secret. And people get bit at tour places and it gets kept secret. Wow. You know, there's NDAs yeah. that you sign. So it's like that's, and that's that's kind of my beef with the whole thing is that like why can't wild animals just be wild animals? Why do they have to be like they would never hurt anybody and they, they there, there's no way you'd get this wild animal that just decided to do this. It was some other factor. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that really takes away from the intelligence of the animals. Yeah. Because with intelligence comes different personalities. Right. And these animals have different personalities. Right. Especially if you see ones multiple times, um, you're like, okay, this one's chill. This one's just a mean bastard. He could be stuffed to the gills with like three turtles in his stomach yeah. and half a baby dolphin. 
not hungry at all. And he'd still give me shit. Right. It's just the way he is. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think that's the way I think of it, which is I think you can still have a profound amount of respect for things and appreciate the fact that they can still eat you or take a bite out of you. Right. It's like, yeah. The, yeah. And I, I completely agree with um, the position of the shedding light and putting sharks into a different uh, image. Because I think that, you know, I am part of the the group of people that thinks that Jaws probably directly contributed to people's negative perception of sharks. And it gives them, I would say, um, a unfounded ethical uh, advantage or however you want to want to say that or ethical perspective to kill them. And I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, man, but at the end of the day, this, this is the ocean, right? And I think, uh, you know, from a guy that spends you know, a lot of time in, in the environment with their kids, like I, 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 the exploitation of, of the environment from, you know, a wide variety of things or like overfishing or, you know, shark fin soup and watching some of the, the, uh, the, the really exploitive fishing practices. And I don't think we actually do it as a country, nor do we support it, but I think there are other countries that do it. I think the perception of the predator in the ocean has to change. I do, because I think it gives people, pseudo permission to think that it's okay. And I'm like, hey man, there's still a wild animal that provides balance to the ecosystem. Like, but we don't have to ride them like fucking dolphins to prove that either. Right. I'm mm-hmm. like, but to each their own, I guess I'm just kind of like, man, this seems fucking crazy to me. <laughs> it seems crazy to me. Like, have you ever touched a shark? Have you ever like touched one intentionally and been like, I just want to pet this shark? Have you ever thought about it? Yeah, I have always I, I love messing with wildlife. <laughs> it was crazy when when I was in Guadalupe, actually. I had a this the biggest, largest male shark that was around the whole time. He would come up and tip his fin to me, which was so nuts. Yeah. I started, I got had the boat brush and I would scrub his side. Seriously? Yeah. He, he loved it. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> he so loved it. The, the other sharks would bite me in half if I gave him a chance. Right. But he loved it. And um, because what I was trying to, I was just experimenting, playing games because I'm like, I need, how do I, I got to figure it out, these guys. Right. Um, what kind of shark was it? Did you say it was, it was a great, great white. It was a great white. Wow. Yeah. Big, big great white. Because what I wanted to test is that a lot of sharks, they, they want to get their parasites removed. Uh-huh. really irritates them. I've, no, I've definitely noticed like a correlation between attitude and how many parasites they have. So I wonder sometimes if they're just very irritated. Interesting, yeah. Because they have a parasite problem. Right. Um, but what sharks will do, like uh, certain kinds of fish will clean the parasites off of them or even uh, birds and gulls sometimes. Uh, so they appreciate things that help them out with their parasites. So that was the idea. I was like, I wonder if he'll associate me with that... Um, parasite removal? like that Parasite comfort. removal. Yeah, let's see, if, let's see if this works. It totally did. Dude, that's... Is interesting. That's, that's crazy. Like, like being able to touch something like that. Like that seems incredible to me. Like that seems like so freaking incredible. I mean, it's nuts. And what the things that you don't see from like, even, even though we have the, like these amazing natural history, like 
8K right. beautiful films on nature. Man, the thing about sharks, it, and I think it's like their coloring, you know, it's very matte, so it's hard to see. You need like a really specific lighting condition. And whenever you have lighting underwater, it's kind of muddled. Mm-hmm. Is their muscle tone and definition when you're really close to them and you see them like open up like the muscle tone on the top of their head. It's like being on a horse, you know, and you see like right. the horse's muscle twitch when like a fly is on its back. Right. You see a shark doing that is just crazy because there's no other way I know of to actually see that besides being like right there, a foot away from it. Right. When it's biting something. Well, I, I can't imagine like as you start because you've been, you spent a ton of time around just sharks in general. So, the first time you were around a really big shark, like was that a? I would imagine because it's Hawaii, right? Was that a tiger? Was it a bull? Or what? What was a big shark? Like your first experience or encounter? Like my first experience was me and my buddy were spearfishing. It was at right here on the North Shore, uh, <clears throat> running a ton of sharks out here, um, and it was a, it was a big Galapagos shark. You know, so big Galapagos is like. Seven feet, probably. Right. And it was actually pretty fired up and like zipping around and kind of aggressive. We had a bunch of fish. So that's why it came. And, you know, at that, it it was also a different time. You know, I'm, I'm coming up on 40. So that was back when like being around sharks, like guys were still using a bang stick and just killing sharks when they'd see them spearfishing. Right. Um, there wasn't like a lot of information about like, oh, yeah, I've, I'm around them all the time and it's cool. It's like, kill the damn thing. Right. Um, so I was like, oh shit. Like we still got to swim back to shore. What do we do? And, you know, it's like swim back to shore and try to be calm. And this thing followed us and it, it stayed relatively close the whole time. But I'm so thankful for experiences like that because you didn't have a choice. Right. Yeah, like I didn't have that knee jerk reaction, like, oh my God, I saw a shark and it totally came after me if I jumped on a boat. Right. No, I still had to swim to shore. Right. And then after a while, I was like, oh, no, like I see a pattern. Mm-hmm. This thing has a pattern. It's not coming any closer than X close, you know? And then fast forward years later into like my early 20s, right? <clears throat> and still, uh, still the perceptions. Actually, this would have been in my late teens. Um, perception's still like, okay, you can't let a shark... And I, I'm still like this. You can't let a shark just take your fish. You got to put up a fight. Right. Because what's happened is you, you don't want them to condition divers to a free meal, the same way right. bears with food. Gotcha. So you have a duty to the next person the shark's going to run into to at least give it hell before right. you just give up your fish. And what does that look like? Like, What are you doing to give it hell? You go after it. Yeah. Okay. You'd be the aggressor. You poke it in the nose away, you know, get aggressive, get in between the fish and uh, the shark. Right. But uh, so we were diving off of Kayana Point out. We had drifted out into like, you know, 150 feet of water. We we're chumming. I was with a couple of my dive buddies I grew up with from out here. And this big, big, big tiger shark showed up. And it, usually they come and they they do this vertical approach where they'll just swim vertical. All you see is its big old box head and its white chin. And so it's swimming up vertical, which is 
that's how they check a lot of things out, but it can be kind of aggressive too. Like, oh man, this thing's like hoping I, d- I don't see it. Right. So I swim down at it, like meet it, poke at it. It's like, okay, that doesn't work. And then they start coming and they use a different approach where they do like a 45 angle, um, a, whatever time of day they'll use that 45, depending on how the sun's hitting the water. It's the most difficult right. angle to see them coming from. So they'll usually do that and then you bust them and then they'll try uh, the surface approach, especially if it's choppy. They think mm-hmm. you can't see them on the surface. So you just kind of always want to keep an eye on them. And this thing kept coming in, kept coming in. And granted, we were we were polloing, we were chumming to try mm-hmm. to bring fish up. So, I mean, duh, sharks are going to show up. <clears throat> I had this uh, power head, single-use power head. So it's like a 38-round one-time use, little like yeah. uh, stainless steel sleeve, and you just put it on the tip of your spear. And I was like, told my buddies... If this thing comes in up to the the ski again, I'm going to pop it, right? So things coming in, I'm like, all right. And I have my my short spear gun, so it was going to have to come close. Right. I was like, here it comes, here it comes. You're going to get it. You're going to get it. And it's like eight feet away from me. I pull the trigger. It doesn't go. I realize I have my gun on safety still. I was like, (laughs) oh, no. And so I look and, you know, that's couple seconds to flip the safety off and look and it's right under my fins and so i hold i'm holding my gun like this and looking back i knew there was a second in my mind was like it's already passing away from me like i'm not in danger right like should i do this still and and i i didn't listen to that like little conscience i pull the trigger and it the spear just boom with the with the blunt power head and it pogo sticks off this thing's head and the round doesn't fire. It must have been Holy a bad shit. round. And the shark just kind of like, I'll never forget the look it gave me. It just rolled over and was like, what, what was that for? <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, and it just kind of cruised off. And I was like, you know what? It, like, it taught me a really good lesson, you know, to be more understanding and pay pay more on attention. I'm so glad that round didn't go off because it would have been out of complete ignorance and right. fear and a lack of flexibility in a game plan. And um, I was like, wow, that was like, that was a really immature asshole thing to even consider. And so it just taught me a good lesson. So it changed my my approach and perspective of, of really from a non-emotional way assessing the situations with sharks and it opened up a lot. That that way of thinking opened up my eyes to recognizing their language a lot more, which is through body language and their behavior. That's a very evolved mentality. I think like, that comes from somebody that's obviously spent a lot of time in the water with these animals because I, there's such a lack of understanding, to include myself, right? I was just telling you earlier, I was like, dude, I don't know why people touch these things. Like, oh my God. Like, and... Like, no, nah, I've touched them. Like, I was scrubbing them with a brush, you know? Uh, well, yeah, I would never do that because I'm not well enough in the water to do that. And I'd be like, you do you. I, I have the same rules with snakes, for instance, right? Like, rattlesnakes, any type of snake, doesn't matter. I'm like, you guys do you, I do me. We're all good. Like, I, I, don't, I don't need the karma in this of like me fucking with you or trying to look at you or catch you or whatever. I'm like, you guys do you, I do me. We got we got a game plan. Like it's all, it's all good. You know, like you stay over there. I stay over here. We're all, we're all good. I think 
like I think it's incredible, like the like what you're just describing and the psychological ease in which you're describing it, where it's like, oh yeah, you know, there's a you know these sharks doing this, and I'm right next to them. And what you're doing on a cadence and the way that you're talking about it is with such ease. But what you're doing is so fucking incredible. Oh, well, we're surfing 30-foot waves and we're spearfishing. Most people can't get in the water. Like, like I, I think, I, and I know they can, but like, for instance, when I was in Hawaii a couple of years ago, my buddy and I went out, he's got a boat. So we're, and he, he loves to free dive, loves to spearfish. Um, and he's been living in Lanai now for like two years. So oh, he's, awesome. he's been there off and on for the last like 15. And then he, once COVID hit, he just... It's not JT, is it? No, nah, it's uh, um, uh, Jason Orvis, his name. Oh, okay, yeah. Great dude. Heard his name. He's a great guy. Like, he's awesome. But he's way more comfortable in these circumstances because like, you know, I'll put a weight belt on and some fins and a mask. I'm still fucking hypervigilant. Like, <clears throat> hypervigilant. Like, everything and anything. You know, you know what I mean? Like, I'm on the surface of the water. I'm kind of trying to get down deep enough where it matters, you know, looking at fish and doing my thing. I'm still like wanting to do like 360s all the time and try to figure out like where everything is. And and the the interesting thing about the psychological factors of this is when you can't see the bottom, it gets worse psychologically. It's like, it gets worse because it's like there's nothing but the abyss, right? It's just like the the light fractions in the ocean and there's nothing out there. And it's so interesting to me because I'm like, why? Like, I know logically, right? So, uh, you know, is it, is it, is a guy that's kind of been, um, exposed to a lot? Like, psychologically, I know there's like, statistically, I'm not going to be eaten by anything. <laughs> like, statistically, it's just not really a thing, right? Like, it's, it's less probable that I would be eaten by something than probably struck by lightning at the same time, depending on the weather circumstance. But I'm still like hyper vigilant. And mm. I think, is it just repetition or do you think there's like genetics involved in this? Do you think it's a combination of like repetition and the way that you were raised? Um, do you ever find a psychological circumstance now where you're like, I'm uncomfortable in this based on the size of the water or the depth or any of those things? Or are those just completely gone now? Oh, no. I'm, I'm, there's times where I'm uncomfortable and I'll be, and that's a, that's a part about doing it long enough. You're like, well, it's a miracle I'm still alive. <laughs> I, I have a daughter now and um, I have to, I've been around long enough to see things go really sideways and I've seen it go bad and I've had it go bad. Um, even when you're prepared, there's when there's like this confluence of, of factors that all happen. It's always, it's not necessarily one thing. It's always like a couple of things go bad at the same time and they might be completely out of your control. Right. Um, but if you spend enough time in that environment, Wild shit's gonna go down. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm definitely more cognizant of it. Um, I've always had those feelings. Um, right. You know, on the huge days, like it's you're, it's real and present. <clears throat> you know, you're you're having some some internal dialogue for sure. What, like, do I want this? Dialogue? How bad do I want this? What's your internal dialogue? What What is that? What's that? What's you know, that sound like? My internal dialogue becomes external. 
Like oh. when I'm out in the lineup, I will be like chewing myself out sometimes, really? like sitting out the back by myself. Like, you wanted it. You wanted it. You came out here and now it's here. And now you're not doing it. What, what's wrong with you? You all talk. What's your deal? You're right. You know, you're going to regret not doing this later. You said you wanted it. You got it. Didn't do it. Six months from now, you're going to be very upset. Yeah. Um, no, but it's it's still spooky. I mean, one session that we had um, at Mavericks this last winter, I didn't even catch a wave that day. Like it was, it was breaking in places I've never seen it break before. It was huge, and I was like, "Well, damn, man!" If I, I don't see a lot of happy endings, like the sheer physics of trying to paddle into these waves. Yeah, you can. It's perfect for towing in with a ski, but like paddling in, there's not a lot of happy endings. Um, but I'm like, okay, well, if I'm going to go and do this, I might as well really do it and go sit right. way out the back where like, I, there's like 70 footers coming in and, uh, you know, just out there cat and mouse, but knowing the reality of like really playing with fire here, because if I get caught by a giant wave here, it's, it's a coin toss, right? It's, it's a coin toss. <laughs> and you know it is that is that yes 100 yeah. percent. like in just all honesty it's right. a coin toss for anybody and or or the best people in the world at that point right you yeah, know what's the what's the biggest wave that you know of like size wise that you've you've ridden i don't know see that's the thing is trying to put a height on waves is difficult so difficult if not impossible because every different angle so they have like the the awards for biggest yeah. paddle in biggest overall wave and it's just always like this funny debate and right it can be so manipulated <clears throat> um i don't know so i i love paddling into big waves so there's a big difference between paddling in with your own two arms or holding on to a jet ski basically like you're skiing behind a jet ski and you let go Right. Um, the difference in exposure to risk and wave knowledge and all of that. And just, it is a lot easier to let go of a rope than to make a decision, be in the line of fire. Like, no, I'm turning and going on this thing right now. Right. And holding the line in there because you can just as easily be in the worst spot ever just sitting in that lineup. Right. You know, you miscalculate, you come over one wave, you're like, oh my God, there's a 70 footer that's going to break 20 feet in front of me, guaranteed. And it's the first, like, five wave set. Right. Like, <laughs> this is bad news. <laughs> yeah. So you're just teeing yourself up and you're ultimately, this is the beginning of your, of your, of your fight, basically. Uh, yes. Yes. And you, so, so paddle in surfing, basically, that's a roundabout way of saying like paddle in surfing is, Paddling into a 60-foot wave is orders of magnitude more difficult than towing into it. Right. Like, it's totally different. So I, I go by, like, biggest wave, I would say, is a paddle wave. I don't know, in, like, that 60-foot range, probably. That's still nuts. I I mean, when you... Because once you step in, like, you got to explain to me what that feels like. Because I, I have a very limited perspective. So when you step into that or 
paddle into it, I should say. And then once you go in to, to, to ride it, what does that, what does that feel like? Are you on autopilot at this point? Are you like, okay, I know exactly what I'm doing as soon as I turn into this? Like, does it ever get normalized in your brain where you're like, oh, yeah, this is just like, you know, walking down the sidewalk? Or is it like, holy fuck, every time? Yes. Well, it depends. It, it never gets normalized, it never gets boring. Right. Um, at all in bigger surf um <laughs> just the speed the noise the uh that feeling of being up that high right dropping into it that the feeling, amount of commitment like that feeling but, dropping into something that high like you're i mean you're what is that 60 feet you're five what five stories high basically hitting, mm-hmm. getting into a wave and you're you got are you just looking down or are you looking where are you looking what what are you looking for and usually you begin by looking like down off the nose of your board because you need to get into this thing it's like all weight on your front foot <clears throat> like dropping in on a skateboard to a half pipe yep. you're like i need you do not want to get stuck up there too long right. up at the top of the wave cuz that can go sideways um so it's all forward pressure and you you're hitting inevitably there's going to be chops. It's like moguls coming down it a lot of times. So you're just like, okay, you're trying to stay planted on your board balance. And as you, if you're experienced, as you feel like you're about to enter the transition of the wave where it goes a little less vertical and right before it's going to go into flat water. Yeah. Now it's time to look up and down the line and get that board on rail to project down the line. So then you're like looking where you need to go. Because what's happening is the wave is moving in. So say if you take a 60-foot wave, that wave is moving between 25 and 30, 30 knots right. in towards the shore. Yep. But it's also moving, I don't even know how fast, across at the same time. Yeah. So whatever that... Whatever that uh, that equation is moving in at a certain speed and across at a certain speed at the same time, I'm assuming is faster than just the speed going directly in. Right. Um, So you're probably going, you know, 35 knots, something like that on bumpy water with a big board. But that's the the really interesting thing that I, I kind of figured out because I saw a video of one angle from a place called Waimea, which is just down the road from my house here because you can shoot it from the side because I always wondered. And that was the big thing. I was still into paddling. I wanted to push the boundaries of paddle and surfing. The argument was it's impossible to paddle into waves that are going 25 knots. Right. You can't paddle that fast. You can't catch that wave, which seems to make a lot of sense. But then I'm like, well, we're catching 12 foot waves that are going 15 knots. We don't paddle 15 knots. Right. You know, granted that speed is very intimidating. It it surely seems when you're in that environment that you cannot paddle into that. Right. But what I realized is what's happening is there's there's water the same way a tsunami draws water off a land. It sucks all the water out the sea before it comes. These big waves are doing something similar. So it's drawing water into it as the swell comes and starts hitting the reef and, and cresting. 
So it's moving really fast and there's water being pulled into it. You're here. Right. You're getting pulled into it as it's coming to you. Right. What you what you're basically doing is trying to figure out at what rate of speed do I have to paddle to end up at this point where I'll be at the very top of the wave and can quickly stand up to my feet and allow me falling with gravity to create enough speed to match the speed of this wave going in. Right. So you're essentially just holding a place right. in the lineup. So it, it's, a, it's kind of like a, a total mind bender in a way because when you look at normal surf footage, it seems like people are usually paddling into it. But when it gets to a certain size, you're really losing ground because it's sucking you into it a lot of times. Yeah. I had I hadn't thought about it like that. That's 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 really that I mean, that's really insightful. I I'm thinking about it in the context of, you know, you're on a, you know, a sixty foot wave and you're getting ready to like, you know, pop up and ride this fucking thing and you're gonna go would you say you're gonna do like thirty five knots on your board? Is that Yeah, you should be doing that um if you're outpacing the wave. And you're five stories up, you're doing 35 knots, you're looking down and across, this is loud as shit, and you're on the precipice of getting dumpstered like at every fraction of a second counts. So the single point focus that that requires... I, I can't even imagine. Like, there has to be, like, I, what, what I'm thinking about is like, people like you need to be studied for like a combination of different reasons, right? And not that you, you know, you're, you're going to try to turn you into a science fair project. Just saying, like, what you're fucking doing is nuts. Like, it's nuts. So you're, you know, you're doing a physical activity that takes like agility, performance, focus, and then just the pure physicality of like training for these two very big substantial things which you know you're paddling out and now you're going to maintain focus in fractions of a second on huge fucking waves for extended periods of time and oh by the way if you mess up the consequences are you're dumping yourself into a russian roulette game <laughs> like i just like Dude, like the people like you, like there's if there's only sub 100 of you, they somebody needs to like take the sub 100, the 50 people like you and go, okay, how do we put you guys into a science experiment and just like study what's happening in your brain? Has anybody done that? Probably looks like Swiss cheese. (laughs) (laughs) Has anybody anybody ever done that? Has anybody ever like taken a bunch of you guys and like tried to figure out what's happening in your brain chemistry? Like, yeah, actually, they I, I participated in a study. Shout out to Red Bull for being fucking twats about it. Um, anyways, I was like, I'll be a part of your yeah. your study to um, if, but I want the information. That's the only way I'm going out of my way. Right. And I was like, and it, as long as I know it's not being used to, you know, find out the psychology of selling more poison to more children. Sure. Yeah. No, <laughs> but um. <clears throat> I was like, I want to know what's happening in my brain, so I'll go and do it. Right. So I uh, I went and did it, and it was one of those those brain tests where they're doing like <clears throat> seeing the brain activity, and they're showing you like different images to see what like there's more to see what your like emotional range is. I think. Okay. 
but yeah, they just ghosted me after it. So I, I don't really know what the result, my results were. Right. Um, even though the, <laughs> that was the agreement, but, um, yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. Um, I just love to have like a halo, like, like one of those, uh, that's not an EKG because that's for the heart, but like something that's monitoring your brainwave with like a backpack that's feeding it data as you're doing this, just to see what's firing where. Because the, the, the amount of information that has to be processing in this, and this is like, you know, from a guy that's, you, from my perspective, it's difficult to see what's happening in a person's brain, for instance, when they're in combat, right? It's very difficult. But it's like everything happens in a fraction of a second. Everything is like maniacally focused. Everything is like driven down to like the individual perception and their ability to make really, really comprehensive tactical decisions in the split session. So it's like split section. So you guys, like, and I've, I've been fascinated by this for so long, like guys like you that are doing things with such drastic consequences, you know, like big wall climbers, uh, they've got time to kind of look at their route and decide where they're headed and it's in its chess, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of chess. This is not chess. Like, I, and I'm not saying it's not chess from your perspective. I'm saying everything has such drastic consequences and it's broken down into these like hundredth, if not thousandth of a second decisions that your processing speed has to be so fast and so many things have to be unconsciously competent for you that yes. you like, you don't know what decisions are being made up here because there's no way you can process that information fucking fast enough and be able to to think about it intellectually and make the decision because then it, it's it's over. Like you've you've missed the entire event if you're trying to logically process something. Yeah, no way. <laughs> Look, yeah, and I, you're you're absolutely spot on. I think it's a layered system, and it the the foundation of that is being unconsciously competent at a lot of skills. So. That's off the table. That's going to happen. Yeah. Right. The other side is like how you're talking about combat or uh, also big wall climbers compartmentalizing. Right. Um, at a certain point, like we're here, me worrying about the consequences isn't right. serving me at this point. Right. But that can be, you, that's obviously not the tool for every job. Right. You, you know, there's a time and a place for it. Yeah. You got to make sure you're using that tool wisely. But compartmentalization of the risk is completely necessary. Um, I think what seems to be uh, accentuated—I wouldn't say completely different from from other things like that—but is very prevalent and accentuated in big wave surfing—is <clears throat> flipping the switches and toggling back and forth very quickly. Right. So I always have imagined, um, you know, uh, my my attitude, whether it's aggression, and you you have to be aggressive and confrontational to be like, here it comes, yeah, I want a piece, I want a piece. Like you have to you have to be aggressive to want it. You have to be aggressive to write it properly, yeah. and you have to. There has to be a certain point to where, like, still on the when it's coming to that edge, your body's like. I don't want to do this. Why are you dragging it, us into this again? Right. And you're like, it's happening. Get right. ready. Whether you like it or not, it's on. <laughs> so it's like, I always imagine a, a circuit breaker in, in my house. Right. That's it. So it's like aggression, bang, we're on, we're on, we're on. You know, 
you, you start doing tomahawking down the face. Yeah. It starts going bad. And all of a sudden, it's like aggression off, happy place on. <laughs> <laughs> like not tensing muscles any more right. than they have to be tense to make sure joints aren't flying out of socket. Um, right. You know, trying now I, I know like I'm kind of like trying to protect my neck. You get whiplash every single time. Bar none, like every big wave session yeah. afterwards, you have like classic whiplash. Like you, you should be in front of Judge Judy with one of those big ridiculous donuts around your neck. Uh, like you would get a settlement if you got rear-ended and looked right. like me after every single big wave session. Um, so, and, and <clears throat> your, the initial violence, the impact, <clears throat> besides it just, that's, that, that's the beginning of the breath hold. And a certain part of that extreme violence that you're feeling because you, you're getting thrown and tossed in every single direction is boom, bang, boom. It's dark. It's loud. So it's almost very distracting too, in a way. It like keeps, it's so intense that it keeps your mind off of the breath hold initially. But as it's like, it's still violent and you're still down and it's black and you feel the pressure, you know, you're deep. Then it starts becoming like, when am I going to come up? Right. When is it going to allow me up? Right. And that's when, you know, you're, you're switching the board. And at that point, I have the only control I, uh, <clears throat> I have is over my state of mind. Right. And that's when I dive deep. It's, it's like when your phone goes into energy saving mode and right. the, the screen dims and everything. I'm pulling everything into the helm of the ship. And that's, that's, it's right here. That's my whole world. That's it. Until I start, I feel that it's going to start letting me up. The hard part is, is when you're like, it's starting to let me up. Have, do, when I've been in my own world holding my breath, because I'm so often a different place, what's my perception of how long I've been here and how much distance I covered and how much time before the next wave comes? Because if I feel like I'm, I'm going up and I can feel in my ears that I'm getting closer to the surface and I'm like, do I expend energy to get up to get one breath before? Because if I expend this energy and I make it to six inches below the surface and this next one hits, right? I'm going to have to really dig deep and reset into a happy place again because I just spent precious oxygen fighting for the surface and I did not get that breath. Um, so I'm coming out of that, that deep power save mode and I have to make that calculation and, and make an estimation and a decision. So I'm snapped back in cognitively. And at that point, I'm going to have to A, either go for it or, or B, I never get to that point. I just pop up, which happens most of the time. Um, and, and then it's toggling back and forth because if I don't get the breath, second wave comes, I have to revisit going back to that mental space all over again. And it's going to be 10 times as hard. That's so fucking interesting. So, And then once you hit the surface, it's back to problem solving. Yeah, Where are those rocks? Yeah. Where are the skis? Where is my board? How much time do I have? What cadence of breathing cycle am I going to assume before the next wave hits? All that stuff. So it's it's the switches on the circuit breaker are just being switched constantly. But it's so interesting because I, 
I think about it the same way, like the compartmentalizing and switches. I, t- I talk about this. I've talked about it a lot where I'm like, you got, you got these switches. It's just a big board. You're like turning one on, turning the other one off. And you have to create the board too, right? So you have to create the board with the switches. If you don't have the switch, you're never going to be able to go like, okay, aggression kicks up, you know, tactical or logical decision-making also kicks up. So it's like decision-making, aggression, push, power down, kick this one on. If you don't build your circuit board, there's no switches to actually be able to like do any of these things. Um, Hey, do you have do you have an extra I know I told you um No, no, I'm good, man. You good? Okay, cool. I, yeah. I need to take a piss break. Can we come back? I'll, do like, I'll take one too. Oh, cool, perfect. All right. Okay. We're back. All right. So do you hang out with Justin Lee? Yeah, he's a great buddy of mine. We've done a, a lot of travels together and I always go visit him on, on Big Island. Uh that guy, so he's just in Utah. Uh, last month uh, or so ago. So he stopped by, hung out for like uh, an hour or two. I actually need to text him because he texted me. He, was, he, he and I have been talking about trying to put together this trip out there. And uh, what a great dude. Like, uh, I mean, what a super nice guy. I met his dad. His dad's like... Uncle Wade. For cool, man. <laughs> like, yep. Yeah. Such a, such a good guy. So that's cool. You guys, I mean, it seems like a fairly small island, I guess. Uh, you know. Yeah, but he's on Big Island. I'm on Oahu. But we've known each other for ages. Like I grew up with one of his cousins coming over here and surfing the contest. And then um, we met probably... Actually, started hanging out probably like 12 years ago. Really? Probably longer. Um, but yeah, we've done spearfishing tournaments together and stuff. And he's been, he's been bow hunting his whole life. Right. So I got into bow hunting about a decade ago. Yeah. How, and, uh, how did you get into bow hunting? Was it more like, ah, oh, this is like a spear, but on land? Or was it like somebody that turned you onto it? Yeah. So a couple of buddies of mine um, were kind of like always harping on me to get into it. Um, Shane Dorian and Dave Wassel, they're both big wave surfers. Right. Um, and I would always, you know, spend a lot of time hiking in the mountains and stuff. You know, we make forts, shoot birds with pellet guns and try to eat them over a fire and gag it down things like that but um on oahu it's just there's goats in some places and there's pigs pretty much everywhere but there wasn't like that draw to me like i always would say like yeah if there's like bears or something like really exciting i would be into it but um yeah it wasn't until those guys were were just head over heels into it. And they're like, I'm telling you, man, it's the craziest challenge and rush and all this stuff. And finally, I'm like, man, I've been in some of the craziest situations of my life with these two. Right. I know what their scale is of judgment. Yeah. They're like, eh, there must be something to this. And then also what, uh, what really made me want to embrace it was uh, I've had, I've, I've got my own fish my entire life. Like we don't, ever buy fish since I was a kid. Um, and, uh, you know, terrestrial animal protein was never really in that equation for us. And I was actually in two motus on one of those trips where I stayed a couple of weeks and I'm I'm staying with a friend of a friend's family and spearfishing all the time. And, uh, they had like a tiny little bed and breakfast. It's in the middle of nowhere atoll. And so, um, and I don't have much money. So I'm just like cleaning up around the place and doing dishes and helping them with dinner and I'm um, bringing fish for the other guests, you know, trying to save them money. 
And uh, one night, uh, the the father of the family <clears throat> was kind of like gesturing to me, like, "Come, come, help me make dinner tonight." I'm like, "Okay." So we go, and he had a little like the full, like Peanuts gang kind of trap, like stick string and a, a, a right. wire box, and we caught a rooster and killed this rooster, and uh, you know, plucking it. And pulling it apart, and I'm just looking at this rooster. I'm like, this is not like the chicken that I know. Right. And then, uh, yeah, it just made me start asking questions about that part of my life because I was always like, I want to get my own food. I want to make sure it's fresh and healthy. And it really made me wonder, like, are the expectations that, or were the expectations that I had for, for uh, red meat? pork and chicken realistic were that are they in line with nature right um and so i started going down this rabbit hole and that's right around the time that documentary food inc came out yeah and um i i, I have uh, like uh, an educated perspective on like the agrochem industry and things like that from hawaii you know your monsantos your sententas yeah. your daos mm-hmm. those bastards um and so, like the whole idea of like factory farming, the pharmaceutical industry, industry, the circular cycle that we, you know, the bulk of America is in, yeah. um, where a lot of our tax dollars go to fund these things, is a reason why you can get a dollar burger. It's not because that beef costs a dollar; it's because you already right. paid for it through tax sub- subsidies mm-hmm. through the gen- genetically engineered corn that's absolutely destroying biodiversity, pollinators you know, groundwater, the list goes on. Um, so yeah, it's all the, all these things of, of, of wanting to be responsible, wanting to be healthy and also have like, you know, that responsibility of, of at least trying, you know, like I'll still eat a burger if I at a joint, if I have to, I'm traveling or if I'm at a restaurant with friends, whatever, I'm not like crazy ultra hardcore about it. But, you know, if I see something that's a, a negative part of our society and our, our culture, and I, I don't think it's good, it goes back to that thing. In a bad situation, you can only control how your brain works. Right. I can't control how everybody else is going to work, but I can make a decision personally to not participate in it. Right. And so I had all these things kind of as a confluence coming together. Mm-hmm. And then I went bow hunting and fell in love with it. sorry that's like so roundabout no i think that's a i think that's like a lot of us right like i i'm new to it you're you've been doing it longer than i have um no i'm new to it so i'm i'm in the last five years and you know i had i had friends i grew up around it like i used to never understand it like like why do you want to carry around a stick and shoot things with a stick like you know, thirty out six is dispatches food like totally, and that's something that I didn't bring up because I'm I'm talking about like the ethical aspects, but it's like why not go shoot it with a rifle? Yeah, so I look at <laughs> from my perspective, like that's where I was like I was coming from because it's like well, the ethical perspective on dispatching food, like hey man, like I'm statistically more likely to hit it in the heart with this, blah blah blah. Right? <clears throat> um, but you know, it it, it I I. I got this trad bow initially and I started doing more because of John Dudley and, you know, and I was like, man, this is just an incredible 
sport. And oh, by the way, it's just as effective as a, a rifle given the circumstance with the person that's you know training with it. It's just as effective. So it's not at least it's not the least bit uh, less ethical than it is in a rifle. I mean, I shot two elk last year, which is fortunate enough to do one with a rifle, one with a a bow. Uh-huh. I shot my elk at 97 with my rifle, which was a 6.5. And I shot the elk at 94 with my bow. What? <laughs> yeah. You launched one in Utah at 94? Colorado. Uh, oh, Colorado. Yeah, but I was... You know, I shoot my bow almost every day. like, And I always shoot it out to like 100, typically 110. Like every day I'm religious, like out, out to, you know, as far as I can stretch it. And I'm out to like 120, 130 at times in my back parking lot. Uh huh. Like, I'm not saying 94 is a chip shot. I'm just saying I can make the shot. And, but my elk died faster and almost in the exact same spot that I shot it with my, with my bow. Whereas uh, six five PRC, I shot my uh, elk in, in Utah. It moved further, and mm-hmm. and they were almost identical. I was just about a half inch high on the heart on each one of those shots, and one was a two inch mechanical blade, and the other one was you know six five PRC, and mm-hmm. it died faster with the arrow in it than it did <laughs> with the bullet in it, and they were almost identical. Uh, so that's wild. I love it. I, I mean, I love it. I, you and I, I think when we saw each other at Deseret, because you, you had hunted, I think, were you on day four when you, when you killed your elk? Was that your first elk out here last that year? That was day four or five. That was my first Utah bull I've, I've okay. killed. That was my third bull. Third bull? Mm-hmm. And at, so where were the other places you've hunted elk now in the States? Um... Idaho, Southern Colorado. Okay. And yeah, and Utah. Yeah. So Southern Colorado is that that's where I, I was hunting too. Probably hunted we might even hunted the same place. Uh, yeah, potentially. Are you going again this September? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Are you gonna be out there with Jesse? Yeah, we're gonna okay. be yeah, there. We'll each other there. Yeah. yeah we keep hunting together. <laughs> Atia is gonna be there too. Seriously? So we're gonna yeah, oh, it's gonna be a lot of the same crowd. That's great. Yeah, so it's gonna be like the same, the same group. And then Jocko is going. Uh, so it's gonna be me and Jocko. Oh, and Jocko is coming. Yeah, too. <laughs> and Jocko. Oh, this is gonna be fun. Yeah, it's gonna be super <laughs> fun. So we literally go from like Utah to Colorado. Are you coming out for any of the the uh, total archery challenges, or are you just coming out to hunt? God, I I really wanted to. I wanted to make uh, Sitka's got an opening in Bozeman, and then yeah. there's attack event. Uh, coming up, but I I have a job in French Polynesia, so I just can't make the turnaround. Unfortunately, I really wanted to make it, <clears throat> but um, I'm I'm, sure. I'm guiding a spearfishing client down there for like two weeks, so um, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, that's not gonna make it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you'll be out here in Colorado. I uh, I I had a couple. I had one more question, but not one more. I got a million of them. I'd like to have you back. On another show because I think you and I could probably talk for like multiple hours, multiple sessions. So, uh, my question was like, what's your beyond doing what you're doing? Are you training outside of that? So, are you, you know, are you like going to the gym or what, what do you do like training to just like live life the way that you're living it? 
Yeah, for me, I kind of mix it up. Um, I'll, I'll do like beach runs and swims. Um, <clears throat> I've been going to jujitsu over the last few months. A uh, really good friend of mine forever uh, is an amazing teacher. His name's Kid Poligro. So he's he's out here and he re- actually wrote the first Gracie jujitsu books. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, so I've been going and training with him and... Um, yeah, for me, it's mostly just getting out. Like, I I get in these training routines, but then again, it's like <clears throat> I'm also I have a two year old daughter. Um, I'm a co founder of two or three different companies. I I do the stunt work. I do uh, the private client guiding. Um, so it's busy. I'll, I'll get into little things like I'll, I'll connect with my groups of buddies that are training, right. doing one thing, and then I come back as like, who's in town? What am I going to do? If I'm in California, it's like, oh, you know, go visit Laird and Gabby and go do the XPT training with them. It's kind of, I, I find it where I can get it. Um, and then uh, the breathing exercises, that's, that's consistent. Yeah. Um, what, what startups are you, you're involved? So Protect, right? You're, you're, you're in those guys. Or yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm a co-founder of Protect. So um, <clears throat> we're just making trying to make the, the, the essentials that you need for better physical performance um, that are going to keep you out in the elements. The essentials in a way that's easy to take, effective to use, effective to effectively absorbed in your body and no like bullshit, basically. Not like, oh, new supplement, new fad. Like, no, source in the United States. You're not getting heavy metals or some weird shit from China. Um, and things that are just going to keep you out there. Um, also, a co founder of a, a subscription box. Oh, so it? what is it? Yeah, it's called, it's called Beachly. Okay. So it's a uh, beach lifestyle um, mm-hmm. apparel and um, different items that it, it's in a quarterly box. Oh, cool. So we've been at that for quite a while. The, the primary, primary audience is female. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we're. We got to be coming up on about thirty thousand members now. That's um, cool. Yeah, and uh, so that's been fun. And uh, yeah, just I guess it's and, and design. I do a lot of design too. He so. is. Like, are you drawing it? Or? <clears throat> no, I am a terrible artist. So I do uh, uh, like collaboration projects. So I did a watch with a luxury watch timepiece brand called Braemont out of the UK. Okay, I designed a bag with Toomey. Oh, nice. Um, I did a sunglass with Costa called the Sampan. That's out now. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, I just did a line with uh, Lululemon Men's. So that just launched a week ago. Um, so yeah, I've always been super interested in the gear design aspect of things. And um, that challenge of making something that's... It has to be functional. I will not abide bullshit that's like overdone. Kind of like our, our supplements with Protect. Like, I want efficiency. I want some badass, fast, and and effective stuff. But to be able to do that with with style at the same time, aesthetic to to challenge yourself to use like more sustainable products, not in a way that you're just like. Oh, this is a recycled material. So buy it because it's a recycled material. It's like, no, buy this because it's going to solve a problem in your life. It's going to look good. Right. And bonus, it's made out of recycled. 
materials. You know, so instead of like taking those those cop outs, looking for things that with with the lens of this is never meant to be like how other people will advertise. Like you need this to be whole. You need this to be perceived in a way. Like my goal is this is gonna take one of those things off of your plate again back to that whole uh having those different disciplines that are automatic like it's the same thing if you if you got a family you're our age and you have a finite amount of time to go spend a weekend um in nature right like you can't worry about every little thing because it's never going to happen and you're never going to be present doing what you actually love for that finite time you're not going to get back so if i can tick one of those boxes and it can be nostalgic and special to you and it can help the psychology of the experience like best um thing that i i heard uh, yesterday somebody was telling me man i just love that to me bag because every time i get it i just know i'm gonna go do something i love i'm gonna be traveling i'm like that's what i want function <laughs> right. and that yeah yes <laughs> Well, it got like you, like you got a ton of repetitions, right? So it's like you're doing a, a wide variety of things around the, the, you know, the world. So it's like, I love hearing when guys are like designing and implementing and putting things into practice that use shit on a regular basis. So to your point, it's like, you know, you're psyching yourself up and you're the guy with the big, you've got massive amount of switches, like turning things on and off all the time. You're doing what other people are aspiring to do. So like if I can go out and trust you to go, hey man, I'm gonna get this bag. Like that's one of the reasons why we we do stuff with, you know, Sitka and Kifaru and all those guys, because John Barklow is a fucking awesome guy. Yep. We know that he designs great gear. And I know if I pull out my Sitka bag, chances are John hasn't really missed anything. Like I I, I know that. I know that for a fact because he mm-hmm. designs great shit. And I, I got some of that protect stuff. Um, Trevor, you know Trevor Thompson. Have you met him before? Yeah. So I I went and hunted with Cole Kramer and Trevor. That's where I where I met Trevor. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I totally chasing started. goats and Kodiak. Yeah, chasing goats. I I'm gonna do that with uh, Cole and those guys. I think next year. So like as soon as I as soon as I can. Like the brown bear hunt was great, mm-hmm. super fun. But man, you you glass. I was gonna say it's a lot of sitting, huh, dude? Like, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not wired for that. Like, <laughs> I'm not, I, yeah. I, I, I aspire to be somebody that can like sit there for extended periods of time. But I just, I'm looking at this like expansive, beautiful terrain, and like the rivers and the mountains and the snow, and I'm like, God, I just want to be like walking through this stuff, like you know, forging the river or fording the rivers, and and you know feeling what's going on out here which mm-hmm. is so remote it's so cool and you just look you're, you're, it's like, you're gonna love the goat hunt <laughs> yeah well it's it cool's like be careful what you ask for man like be be careful what you wish for i guess like sloan from yeti <laughs> i was on that trip yeah dude that that pack out was the most <laughs> ass kicking pack out dude i've ever done like i you know what it was too is I didn't eat because at the at the end of the day when we finally so I was at like I was bonking like five hours before we were done <laughs> huge pack like side hill downhill bushwhacking like crumbling 
one foot wide riverbanks that you're like, oh, if I go down here with this pack, like I'm gonna have a compound fracture. Like right. this ain't good. And uh, yeah, I, I remember we got back to the the tent, and I just instantly like on autopilot went and found the Snickers stash and ate like <laughs> six of them. And Trevor's like, dude, dude, how much food did you eat today? And he's got his he's got his watch. And he's like, we burned X amount of calories. And I'm like. Oh, I ate like maybe 10% of the calories I needed. Like my body was consuming itself. That guy, like I love hunting with Trevor. I've hunted with him like, I don't know how many times now. Like he, like the first archery hunt I ever went on was uh, me, Trevor, uh, John Dudley, Andy Stump. So the four of us. Nice. And uh, we were hunting hogs, like spot and stock hogs out in Oklahoma, which was... So much fun. At the same time, I think we walked like 60 miles trying to spot and stock hogs like every day, putting in like consistent 12, 12 mile days. And Trevor and I are just like packing our bows around, just like, when are we going to shoot one of these, <laughs> one of these things? And, uh, and I'd heard this, you know, I was like, hey, you can't, I heard all these myths, like you can't eat hogs because they taste like shit or whatever, right? And, we killed a couple of them, put them on the Traeger. Incredible. Like absolutely incredible. So from that point forward, like I don't, I'm not going to listen to anybody. When they tell me like, no, you can't, you, you can't eat this or this doesn't taste very good or whatever. I'm like, we did nothing in prep, by the way, that like we didn't like soak it in anything. We literally... No, like milk no. soaked for a day, vinegar no. soaked for a day. No, we didn't do any of that. We took the back straps out of this thing. Threw it on the Traeger. It was, it was juicy and incredible. And that was like, uh, I think to kind of go back to what you were talking about earlier with, earlier with archery, it was the same thing with me and my family. It was like, I want to be able to pull wild meat in because we're meat eaters. Uh, you know, if I know the farmer that's raised the cow or whatever it is, that's different. But you know, mass scale commercialized like processing. I'm not, I'm just not into for a wide variety of reasons, whether it's like environmentally sustainable or, or, um, the way that it's processed, being able to track where your meat come from, what comes from, uh, how they're actually harvested and put through a plant. Like there's so many different reasons why I think this is a more ethically way to live. And a lot of guys are like, and I've heard this too. It's like, well, that's pretty easy for you to say because you yes. have rate of income. I'm like, Hey man, I bought a cow tag, a cow elk tag here every year for less than $400 from landowners that just have excess cow tags out here. So I just get in the newspapers, KSL, it's on my app, buy a cow tag. I could, I could literally be killing a cow for less than $400, get a couple hundred pounds of meat off the cow, get all the bones, be able to take them home for the dogs, like anything and everything. And I'm like, so you can't buy beef at that price. Like you can't buy beef at that price. And it's not wild. It's not coming out of the field. You're not learning anything new. That's one of the things I truly love about archery is like I get closer to the animals. I get these like really profound experiences like being in the field with your bow during rut. Like it's crazy. I mean, you've you've been to these places in like Utah and Colorado, like Last year in yeah. Colorado, dude, I was surrounded by hundreds, like 
all these herds were converging into one area, this like creek bed system in the in the meadow outside of the, the place where we're hunting. Hundreds of cows and bulls. And the bulls are screaming their heads off and they're I didn't know what clunking was. I had no idea what... Oh, yeah. I didn't know what it was. So I was like, I'm asking the dude next to me, I'm like, hey, what is that sound? It's like sloshing and like, kunk, 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 kunk. And... Uh, Bigfoot has entered the chat. <laughs> like, that's uh, that's their penis, man. That's, that's their penis. I'm like, are you serious? Yeah. And it's like such a profound experience being in the field. I love being in the field. Like I, I, uh, I, I was a fly fishing guide for quite a long time. Like I, I love fly fishing and rowing boats and rivers. And so there's no reason for me, like there, there, I never need an excuse to get out and like really, you know, get in the water, get in the field. Now I have a better excuse, which is that's what it's all about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's it. Like all of this, like making a living thing. Yeah. And tailoring it so you have more of an excuse. Sorry, like, honey, man, I got to do the sicka hunt. Yeah. Sorry. It's like, you got to do it. I got to do this sicka. The best scam on earth, man. Are you kidding me? I've been doing it my whole life and surfing. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I have, um, I have officially eaten up. Uh, about two and a half hours of our time. I appreciate everything that you, uh, you bring to the table as far oh, as thanks. Like, you're inspirational, you're aspirational. Like the things you're doing are so incredibly cool. Uh, you're very humble. Like, I thank you so much for being like just being you because, like, what you do is <laughs> it's fucking mind blowing. And uh, like, it's a true, true honor for me to just sit down and talk to you, shoot the shit. When you come out to Utah, I'd love to be able to host you for, you know, a cup of coffee and, you know, another maybe in-person interview. Who knows? Yeah, dude. Thanks. Yeah. I, I actually just got a call for a, a job maybe out there in the next few months. So I'll, I'll let you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks so much. And I love what you guys are doing. Um, like unapologetically. <laughs> yourselves which is oh my god we need that these days so it's a it's a, a shining beacon of uh of not bending to pop culture which i absolutely love you know matt and i talk about it all the time where we're like man it's if people only knew that we're just not this sophisticated <laughs> you know it's not that sophisticated like we're, we're doing this uh new york times article they've been writing an article on us and we're just like waiting to see that should go great yeah that'll go great yeah it's just gonna be a total dumpster fire and, <laughs> and, uh, it, we were talking about it we we're like you know at the end of the day man like we are who we are we love what we do like you know I mean, we we make stupid jokes and roast coffee it's great it's fucking hilarious and it's fun uh but, and two, I get to like talk to guys like you and it gives me an excuse. Once again, it gives me a perfect excuse. I'm like, hey man, I got this podcast. You want to sit down and have like a two-hour conversation about <laughs> surfing and <fucking> archery? <laughs> like, and then we get to like air it and we talk, you know, we talk all kinds of shit. People get to I, I think about it all the time from like the listener's perspective, too, where it's like I would love to. I, I loved having this conversation. Like I love to be yeah. down with you for a couple hours. Like how many people in their life just get to sit down and have this conversation for two hours? Like mm-hmm. nobody gets to do that unless you're like coming into your house or sitting there with cocktails with somebody. 
It's incredible. And, and how many of our ancestors were able to, you know, connect with people around the world like this? It's like, just to think of a, your time and place on the world, how fortunate you are and your time and place in history, how fortunate you are to have these like, adventures whether it's like stimulating conversation or actual physical adventures and it's like if, if there's not an appreciation and not taking advantage of it i feel like you're really missing out right now yeah you're really missing out there's so many reasons to get out and just kind of be in, a, in, a, in an epic experience there's so many reasons you can like you know, my wife and I talk about this all the time where it's like dude we're 45 minutes away from some of the beautiful, most beautiful mountains in the United States we get in the car, we can take the kids, put them on a trail in places where they're pristine, the air's clean, you know, the trails are clean, everything's like, it's beautiful. So why wouldn't we take advantage of those things? Uh, anyway, dude, such a, such, a, such a privilege, man. I can't thank you enough for, for sitting down with me. Uh, definitely hit me up when you're coming out to Utah because we'd love to sit down and do another combo. If not, we'll figure it out. We'll do another Zoom. Cool, man. Thanks so much. Love it. Yeah, dude. See you, All right. See ya. Bye. That concludes today's training. Any questions? Woo! Drum titties, boy!